No, John is really a very gracious pastor, and um, we talked about me coming to speak again because we'll be back, and he's always said, Andrew, anytime you're in town, just let me know, and um, it wasn't going to work for this Sunday. He said, could you extend your visit for another week? And... Um, because you could preach next Sunday. And I said, no, I'm already away two weeks. I was at our international leaders meetings in Panama and um, flying visit. I've got added reasons to be here. Not only do I have a wonderful son, an even more wonderful daughter-in-law, now I've got an incredible grandson as well. And so the attraction is growing daily. Um, and my wife's attraction is really growing hourly at this point as well. And John's always said, anytime you're through, that'd be great. And um, I said, I couldn't, it's, it's fine. I'd be glad to come and hear you preach and whatever. And, and then midweek, uh, he said, Andrew, could you fill in for me? <laughs> Which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> and I said, not a problem. Be glad to. Um, so uh, I said, do you have a subject? And he said, well, we're doing this series, but uh, it's his series. You know, he's, he's got to get into it. And, I, you know, he said, just preach on what's on your heart. So here I am going to do that. Before we start, though, um, some of you know me, and you probably don't know my uh, Tim and Renska and Tice, um, but uh, some of you know I worked for pastors for a number of years in, in Ohio with the CNMA and then in France for eight years and then changed with a different missions organization called OM, or Operation Mobilization, just about personally to change roles. I headed up our international team, which made sure the money moved around the world, does IT around the world, make sure all the news and the video goes out to churches and supporters and partnering groups around the world as well. And I'm just about to start as a director of evangelism and church planting in the UK. So different set of responsibilities, probably more in line with my practical skill set rather than my theoretical skill set. So um, some of people are asking me also, what's happening in Europe with all these refugees? And... Um, can I be honest with you? It's a bit of a mess. Um, and uh, let me be honest, you know, I'm a good Englishman. You know, England should be English people. We've had the Normans invade, and we had the Danes invade, and we had the Romans invade, and then we had the Americans invade in 1942 as well. And, and I just, you know, I'm pure mutt, you know, because I'm English. That's what we had. And, but still there's that sense of national, I'm English, I shouldn't. And then I thought to myself, but wait a minute, I'm not only a citizen of the United Kingdom, I'm a citizen of heaven. And I may get 70 years here on this earth as a citizen of a country, but I got eternity to spend with citizens of all people. So I better adjust my thinking just a little bit and not let my nationalism interfere with my, my citizen of heavenism, if you will. Um, and so even though it causes me great internal conflict sometimes, uh, I've decided that I need to take care of refugees, be involved in their lives, and uh, help an organization which is doing that to do it well as well. So we have a million refugees coming into Europe every year, um, through Greece primarily, a lot of uh, Syrians, a lot of Afghans, um, uh, a lot of other people from North Africa, Somalia, and places like that. Um, and arriving in Europe, and we've developed a program, A, to greet them, um, to extend the love of Christ with them, and then as they move through Europe and eventually find a place to settle, uh, we've got information with those people if they're interested, we've got contacts across Europe, so we can hopefully see some of them come to Christ as well. And God is bringing these folks to Christ remarkably as well. Here's a little short video of uh, what we're doing, along with other organizations, 
on the island of Lesbos, and then in Athens, and then actually further inland as well, um, into Slovenia and um, Macedonia and places like that as well. But here's, here's the video, and uh, it'll tug at your heartstrings, I tell you, and a couple of words after it. On the island of Lesbos, serving on the island of Lesbos, uh, reaching out to the refugees, um, thousands upon thousands of refugees just showing up on the island every day, and we are here to, to assist and to help where we can um, in a culturally sensitive manner towards the Muslims. I realised that this is the perfect opportunity to share the gospel to people who, who might never even have heard about the name Jesus before. We're in, in Greece, yes, we're in Greece right now. Two months I left Afghanistan and I've just arrived here right now. It's so dangerous trip in my life. I came here for for good future. Uh, if I, I stay in Afghanistan, I will, that's so dangerous. I can't say anything about my future in Afghanistan. We have been receiving refugees here in Greece for the last 15-20 years because Greece is the main entrance for refugees into Europe. That's a great opportunity for the Church of Christ here in Greece and the small evangelical community to respond. This place that you have seen around, it's a, an emergency camp. So the people, the people that they come here, they, they pass from here till today around 10,000 refugees from 99.9% uh, .9, uh, from Afghanistan. Right now OM is uh, partnering in Galati um, with the mayor's office and the churches. One is to help coordinate the food distribution. We are working, we are empowering the churches to do what God has called the churches to do. And that is, we resource the churches in terms of providing food, dry rations, supplies, and then the churches then cook and bring those uh, meals into the refugee camps. God moves or touch your heart when you see people who are uh, in this uh, you cannot withhold what God has given you as a blessing. We are all refugees. I'm a refugee. I left my country. We are all created in the image and likeness of God. If we say we love God, then we should love our, our neighbor. My inspiration is, of course, God. It's His love for the people and He loves everyone. We make lunch boxes, and then we go to the people. I thought first they want to take the food, but they didn't take first the food. They took the Bible. 
this is really uh, God now open door. This crisis has tremendously helped the unity of the church. We see churches from different backgrounds, different denominations, different theological structure to come together to serve the refugees. And that has created a movement of unity. This is a, not crisis, this is opportunity. We must wake up and make opportunity. organization I have, um, the last gentleman on there speaks Arabic fluently, he's a Dutchman, um, spent 16 years in the Middle East, so uh, we are giving people a welcome when they come in the name of Jesus. It, the number of Korans that are left on the beach is incredible. My daughter was involved in making this video and she says there's lots of Korans just being left there. They're coming from these countries, leaving their Koran behind, looking for something new. And they're being welcomed with European socialism, secularism, and a handful, a small groups of Christians who are extending the love of Christ to them. And they're connecting with us as Christians and other Christian groups as well. We've got a program which connects them there and then across Europe, um, all the way to Holland and Sweden and Germany as well, as we go from safe passage to safe harbor at the same time as well. And God is bringing um, these folks from these Muslim countries, these countries which embraced Islam, um, to Christ. Uh, in a remarkable way. Fastest growing immigrant churches in Holland, for instance, are Farsi, Persian-speaking uh, churches, and God is doing good things there as well. Um, in Europe, we don't have to go to those countries, we still are, but God is also bringing those refugees to our country as well, our countries. And um, so there's some good things happening in the midst of political crisis, and as Christians, we're saying it's not a crisis for us, it's an opportunity for us to see people come to heaven where we'll be for eternity as well. Uh, that's my heartbeat. Um, and as I was thinking about what to preach on this morning, I thought we'd look in 2 Timothy chapter 2 um, and think about five imperatives as to how we do mission in the modern world. And what Paul is saying to Timothy um, applies then, but it also applies now. And incidentally, these five principles we'll look at apply to any area of life. They apply to business, they apply to sports, they apply to politics, they apply to your family. And so you can take these five principles and you can use them in lots of different areas. But I hope also you'll use them in terms of a mission of God, telling other people the gospel about Jesus Christ as well. Let's just read the text this morning uh, from 2 Timothy chapter 2. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses. And trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hard-working farmer also should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering. 
even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can come together and hear it spoken, think about it. And we ask, Lord, as we approach this text this morning, that your spirit will work in our lives, and it won't just be empty words, but words of power that cause change, so we are more like Jesus as we leave this place than when we came in. Father, thank you that we can worship you. We can lift you up to the place you deserve because of who you are, by your very person through Jesus. Lord, again, as we speak this morning, you'll be in those words. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Paul's book to Timothy, his letter, 2 Timothy, is probably the last piece of writing that he did. Um, He's going to die shortly afterwards, and in it he is at pains to sort of help Timothy grasp the essential principles of spiritual formation or discipleship, if you will. And chapter 2 in particular, he's, he's looking at five commands, imperatives, about what it means to be passionate in what I call an average world. How do you retain that passion? How do you move forward? How do you keep mission at the heartbeat of who you are and what you do? And he gives us five principles resolving around these five things. Character, calling, I call it the challenge, capacity, and competency. Easy to remember, five Cs. These five Cs apply to every area if you want to do well in them, as we'll see as we go through as well. The first one he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1 is quite simple. He says, you then be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in grace, he says. It's a call to be courageous. It's a call to know what grace of God is and how you can be in it and remain strong in it. I don't know about you, but um, I've liked to drive fast cars in the past. Not anymore. I'm a missionary, can't afford fast cars, but I did get to drive some fast cars when I lived in America and um, only took them to 65 miles per hour because that's what you're allowed to do. Um, (laughs) And uh, the thing is, if you've got a car that can do 150, you know, a Mustang or, or something, why would you want one if you can't get it to more than 65? What's the point? Can you really prove it that it can do that speed? And you you can't. You have to come to Europe. (laughs) Welcome to Germany. You can drive very fast on the Autobahn. But but seriously, if you want to show what, if you want to be strong in your car, you've got to push it to everything it can take. So you can go fast in a fast car. You can do that. And when he says, be strong in grace, Paul is saying to Timothy, you've got to count on the grace of God for everything in your life. You've got to take it for all that it can do and revel in it, enjoy it, so then you can pass it on to other people. You've got to experience it firsthand. It's about forgiveness, for instance. You've got to experience the forgiveness of God in all the areas of your life. And then you can be strong in it and pass it on to other people, he says. 
That's what it means to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Too many of us, we've got what I call stunted Christian lives. We've got little pieces of grace in our lives in little areas of our lives. But we've got whole big areas of lives where, actually, I can run that part of my life very well, thank you, God. I don't need you to help me. Oh, you're not there, right? I'm the only one? (laughs) I think you're deceiving yourself. You see, we need to be strong in the grace. We need to accumulate everything that God has for us in that way. And then we can pass it on. The second thing about this idea of be strong is it's not about doing or getting or having. Evelyn Underhill, a writer from England, um, died in 1950, says this, we mostly spend our lives conjugating three verbs, to want, to have, and to do. Craving, clutching, and fussing on the material, political, social, emotional, intellectual, even on the religious plane, we do that as well. We are kept in perpetual unrest, forgetting that none of these verbs has any significance except insofar as they are transcended and included in the fundamental verb to be. Being, not wanting, not having, not doing, is the essence of a spiritual life. And Paul says to Timothy, he says, be strong. Because who you be determines what you do, what you aim for, what you go for, etc., etc. We live in a culture in the Western world which does three verbs very well. Want, do, have, craves, clutches. We live in a culture that doesn't do being very well at all. And Paul says to Timothy, be strong in grace. You see, it's about character. It's about who you are in your essence. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is the first important thing in doing the mission of God is to make sure who you are in your very character is about grace. You've received it so you can pass it on to other people. You know the forgiveness. You know the power of God so you can give it on to other people. It's about being friends, being strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. When you're strong in this grace, you're a part of it. It's about, it's about victory. It's about being courageous in it. It's about counting on it. One of the great heroes of yesteryear uh, during the Second World War was this gentleman right here whose picture is coming up. Anybody know who that was? George S. Patton, that's right. And I, you know, one of the great movies came out in 1970 just entitled Patton. And um, at some point when you're old enough to be able to put the language aside, you should probably get inspired and watch it. The language is atrocious. Um, I won't read his speech. But he made these set a series of speeches before D-Day in the Second World War in England um, to American troops who are about to head into, into Europe in a new way. And he's inspiring them to be soldiers um, and to, to be the kind of soldiers he wants them to be. Um, and he, he, says, he, th- he says things like this. I'll, I won't... I'll I'll convert the language. All the real heroes are not storybook combat fighters. Every single man in the army plays a vital role. So don't ever let up. Don't ever think that your job is unimportant. What if every truck driver decided he didn't like the whine of the shells and turned yellow and jumped headlong into a ditch? That cowardly man could say to himself, they won't miss me, just one man in thousands. What if every man said that? Where would we be then? 
No, thank God. Americans don't say that. Every man does his job. Every man is important. The ordnance men are needed to supply the guns. The quartermaster is needed to bring up the food and clothes for us, because where we are going, there isn't a lot to steal. Every last man in the mess hall, even the one who boils the water to keep us getting from the GI... GI... Diarrhea, that's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> has a job to do. He's inspiring his men to be the kind of soldiers he wants them to be. One of the bravest men I saw in the African campaign was on a telegraph pole in the midst of Fury's fire while we were moving towards Tunis. I stopped and asked him what he was doing up there. He answered, fixing the wire, sir. Isn't it a little unhealthy up there right now, I asked. Yes, sir, but this wire has got to be fixed. I asked, don't those planes strafing the road bother you? And he answered, no, sir, but you sure as do. Now, there was a real soldier, a real man, a man who had devoted all he had to his duty, no matter how great the odds, no matter how seemingly insignificant his duty appeared at the time. Patton wanted his soldiers to be soldiers. Paul wants Timothy to be strong in grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what God has done for you? Really? Have you looked yourself in the mirror recently and realized what a person you are? That you're really not very nice? I know you're all dressed up for Sunday church, listening to the Englishman preach, but seriously, friends, you're not that nice. And if you think you are, it's even worse because you've deceived yourself. You need to be strong in the grace is in Christ Jesus. You need to have received it. And only when you've received it can you pass it on. Character will lead to action, always. Paul says to Timothy, be strong in grace. The second thing he says is in verse 2. He says, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He, he puts out another aspect of character, faithfulness, but he's going to add this idea of calling, if you will, to it. He says, find some other people who you can give the stuff to who will be able to give it to other people. Now, it's not just find some people who can do it and then won't pass it on. It's the idea of find some people who will get it and then they can pass it on which includes that they will find some more people and then they can pass it on. You follow with me? God's designed us as humans this way. You know, you have children, and the children are not the end unto themselves. They have children as well, so you can keep passing it on, if you will. Human life, that is, in this case. And Paul says to Timothy, find some people who are called to do this kind of ministry, the mission of God. Give them the stuff which I gave to you so that they can give it to other people who they will also find. You know, friends, we are only one generation from the wipeout of the church in any country. There are 4,000 people every day, sorry, every week, who don't go to church anymore in North America. Every day, that's 200,000 people this year less go to church than they did last year. We're in trouble, friends. We're in trouble. We've got to figure out how to reach our culture in North America for Jesus Christ. In Europe, they've hit the bottom, and they're coming up the other side. But the bottom's a long ways down. Bottom a long, way, long ways down. You've got to find people who you can pass the stuff on to, the message 
the gospel who will pass it on to other people. You've got to find other people who are called to the mission of God, which is about spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Reliable, faithful people in that way. That's the second command he gives them, him. him. The third one is this. It's in verses 3 through 6. It's what I call the challenge. He says, share in suffering. Join with me in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Join with me in suffering. You see, the challenge of mission is it will always cost something. It will always cost something. It will cost energy. It will cost intellectual pursuit. It will cost money. It will cost you your time. It may even cost you suffering and your personal comfort in that way as well. And that's what Paul is saying to Timothy. He says the challenge of the mission of God is that it will cost you. We cheapen the grace of God when we say it won't cost you anything, it's free. I know that's true in the sense that salvation costs Jesus everything and us nothing. But in order for you to be engaged with it, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. In the Second World War, if you wanted a free country, and I say from the bottom of my heart, thank you for Americans who came over and joined the war effort in 1942. I've got relatives who are British who died. I've got American relatives on my wife's side who died. Thank heavens they did that. But it cost, friends. And the war of spreading the gospel costs and unless we're willing to pay the price the challenge of the paying the price we're going to continue to slide around the world in terms of christianity and keep going down paul gives us three pictures about the cost the first one he uses is the soldier i could quote more pattern but patterns he told the men very clearly what the cost was he said some of you are going to die he says, you're going to shove your hand in your next door neighbor and realize that his guts are coming out. He says, and that's going to make you want to fight all the more. He's aiming to get soldiers who are willing to pay the cost. And he was inspired to do that. Friends, it's going to cost. It has to cost. It will cost. Faithful people to do it. Three pictures he gives us. The soldier. You see, the soldier, I'm going to just take a little aside. When I step over to the side and tell you, that means I'm sort of off track just a little bit. It means I have to come back. All right? Bear with me. In the church today, we have lots of good language about loving Jesus. I enjoy my emotions. One of the great things that's happened in the church is, is you're allowed to enjoy your emotions in the presence of God. You, you are, right? Yeah? I mean, we see that in the Bible as well. This is not something unscriptural. And then we use this language of Jesus being the bridegroom and the church being the wife. And we use the language of lovers. And a lot of women don't have any problem with that. It's a good language. It's a Bible language. But for a lot of men, it's like, ew. <laughs> but you see, the Bible uses another set of language as well. It uses what I call warrior language. Paul's doing it here. He's using the language of athletes and cost and warriors and fightings and battles. And he says, I fought the good fight. My end has come. In the book of Isaiah, the one who's to come, Messiah, is called the great warrior. And the challenge is who can go out and join him. David makes his comment about David and Jonathan, that they loved each other more than man loves a woman. Because, you see, warriors are actually lovers. 
And Paul uses this picture here of the, the soldier who seeks to serve his commanding officer. And it's the picture of a lover, if you will, because that's what warriors are. They have to stick together. And Patton, he inspired these men to follow him into battle, to count the cost and then to go for it, because they loved him. They loved him. And so the language the Bible uses... Now, a lot of you women go, battle, fighting, blood, guts, ugh. But for men, they track with it on that basis. That's the good thing about the Bible, right? It's able to get the women and the men. <laughs> Hallelujah, right? <laughs> Incidentally, David himself, huh? Best poetry, musician, warrior, and organizer. <laughs> All three in one man. Rare person that can do those things. All three. Very rare. I'm back on track again, all right? He uses the picture of a soldier who's a lover. He's not entangled in civilian affairs. He knows what his mission is. He's going to overcome the challenge of self-suffering, and he's going to go for it. And the cost to anything is going to be that way. If you want to be great in athletics, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you early morning practices. You're going to push your body. You want to be good in business, it's going to cost you extra hours, and you'll have to say no to some things. And you may get to the point you say, is it really worth it? <laughs> you better be sure your business is worth it at that point. There's always a cost in the challenge. Join with me in suffering, he says. He uses a second picture of an athlete, and he says the athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. You know, when they throw the hammer, you've seen them in the Olympics, and they whirl around with this big ball and chain and let it fly, and it goes wing off there, and you get a big Scotsman or a big Ukrainian, and they always win, unless they've come to America, and they always win as well. <laughs> but, you know, they're not allowed to go over the front edge. There's a little lip there. If they go over the front edge, their throw is disqualified. They have to turn around and walk out the back. If they don't walk out the back, their throw doesn't count. It's the same in athletics when you run 100 meters. You run 100 meters, and if you stray out of the lines, you're disqualified. And Paul says the cost is to get in the mission of God right. There's some rules to obey, if you will. Now, I know grace doesn't do rules. I understand that. But if you want to do the mission of God that God's called you to, there's some concepts and some precepts that you've got to go by in order to be effective in accomplishing the mission of God. I heard that uh, John's son, Luke, who, who's John's, which son is it? Caleb. Caleb. He's doing a little wrestling this weekend. And, you know, there's rules to wrestling. And I thought we'd get a picture of him up and see if we can't see him in action. <laughs> you know, these guys, there's some rules to being a good sumo wrestler. You've got to put on about 800 pounds to be able to do it well, you know. I'd like to see John's son go up against one of the, oh, I think he squashed mincemeat. <laughs> but there's rules. It's the athletics picture. There's a cost. The challenge is the cost. Are you willing to pay it? And whatever you're going to do. That's the third thing he says. Join with me in suffering. We've seen the character issue. We've seen the calling issue. That's the challenge issue. The challenge is the cost issue. The, fourth thing, the third thing the picture he uses is this picture then of the farmer. He says the farmer needs to persevere. There's a reward at the end if the farmer perseveres. He should be the first to get some of the first fruits. You know, and if we're serving the mission of God, and as we persevere in the mission of God, there is reward at the end. There really is, friends. And sometimes we get a little taste now, don't we? 
But can you be imagined being around the throne of the Savior one day, like we were singing about, and seeing people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation worshipping God? Because we all had a little part in seeing some of those Muslims come to Christ and knowing God personally through him. Or some of the street people in your own community who have been caught up in things which they don't want to get caught up into and they got caught there. And, and we've been involved in rescuing them. So one day, one day, there's a reward. But not now. That's the cost. It's not immediate in that way. It's the challenge of persevering in order to finish well. The fourth thing he says is in verse 7. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. The NIV says, reflect, so the Lord will give you insight. I call it capacity. You see, God wants you to know him. He wants your sins forgiven. He wants you to know that you have eternal life. But he wants you to grow in that, to have more capacity, if you will, to know him as well. And Paul says to Timothy, hey, what I've just written about and these things, reflect on, grow in them, get more. This principle applies to everything, doesn't it? Sports, business, you've got to study, you've got to grow in those things. Same principles, same concepts, Paul knows them, they've been around forever and a day, capacity. He wants him to grow in his capacity to assimilate these ideas so he might know God more and in a deeper way. Think about it. God will give you understanding if you give the time. He really will. The fifth thing he says is remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. So remember the gospel about Jesus. And you sort of might have think to yourself, wait a minute, why would Timothy forget why does Paul have to say to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, this is my gospel? And I sometimes think that we need reminded as well. Because we get caught up in so much stuff, don't we? And, and it's not bad stuff, don't misunderstand me. We, we, we do the psychological personality tests. We've got good things happening. We engage in this and this and this and even the preaching of the word and explaining what the text means and, and, and they're all good things. But Paul says to Timothy, he says, remember Jesus Christ, born of David. And he's taking him back to two essential characteristics which if you, if you lose, you've got no more foundation. And the first thing is this, is that Jesus really was a man. He has a history. He lived and died. That's what the Old Testament is all about. How did Jesus come about? He's, he's the son of David. He was as human as you and me. He was born. He did all the things humans do. He really did live in history. He's not a metaphysical idea, if you will. He's not just a philosophy of nice happiness. We could add a lot of other things. And the second thing he says, remember Jesus Christ, offspring of David, he reverses them, risen from the dead. He says he's in every way unlike us as human beings because we're all going to die and we're not going to rise from the dead like Jesus did. 
well, let me rephrase that. We might well rise from the dead. We probably will do. We will do if we're Christians. But Jesus rose from the dead in and of himself, not because of somebody else. Just in case there's any theologians out there checking what I'm going to say, all right? I want to explain it clearly. So he's unlike us in that sense. He was very real, very human, had a complete history, but God interacted in the history through this person and he rose from the dead and he's living today. So he's unlike Buddha. He's unlike the founder of any other religions who were probably real people as well, but they didn't rise. He says, don't ever forget the gospel. That's the foundation, that's the bottom bit. If you lose that bit, you lose everything. Remember the gospel of Jesus. He's going to talk about it a little more in depth because it's this idea of remembering in the New Testament is not just sort of, oh, that happened in the past. It's that happened in the past and it has ongoing consequences today as well. I remember the day I got married fairly clearly. I suspect that most of you who are married do. Uh, and that was it, right, friends? You didn't, you didn't do any more after that, right? No, see, the marriage started something and had ongoing consequences. And so Paul is now going to talk to Timothy about what I would call competency. It's competency in the Christian life. It's the basics of the Christian. If you want to be good at the mission of God, you've got to be competent in the Christian life. You've got to be growing in the Christian life. And that's what he's going to talk about in the last few verses as well. It's back to a similar issue to finding faithful people which he talked about earlier. Faithful people who can pass it on to other people. It's got to be alive and growing in you. Incidentally, um, that's what the characteristics of elders are. It's about character. It's about calling. Paul deals with it in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's about character. It's about calling. It's about growing in that way around as well. And he lists a whole bunch of attributes. Should be faithful to his wife. Shouldn't be an angry kind of fellow. Shouldn't be in love with money because he's got to take care of people. And if he's in love with money and takes care, he's just going to use those people to get more money. Oh, think TV show. Wrong. You know, the simplest definition of the right kind of character for an elder, I'm on an aside, need to come over here, <laughs> is this. Would I want that man and his wife to raise my children if I kick the bucket and my wife kicked the bucket? It's a really good, simple thing. If you can't look at the man and go, nah, I really wouldn't want him raising my children. It's about character. It's about calling. It's about faithfulness. And Paul says in this bit, it's about this idea of growing, of competency in experiencing on an ongoing basis the Christian life, because it's all present tense for us. Salvation is a thing in the past, but salvation is a thing I live in now as well. It's like marriage. I was married, and now I live in a marriage state, and I want to grow in it, he says. He says, I'm bound, but the word of God is not bound. Paul has realized that come what may, his life is for one purpose. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. He says, I've got one life to live. I'm going to live it for God. I'm 52, I think. Am I 52? You know, and the past hasn't been too bad. I've been working hard at living my life for God, but you know what? 
I, I reckon I've got 15 really good years left, you know, uh, maybe 20. But at a certain age, you start to wind down pretty significantly. If you're in that category, I need your wisdom as how I can do that life, part of my life well as well. But at 52, I've got 15, so I, I want to live. I've got one life to live, one shot at this thing, and I want to do it for the mission of God. I want to do it for the mission of God. And I want to grow in that capacity during this life. It's not static thing in that way. So he says, remember him. I'm suffering for him. The word of God is not bound. I endure, present tense. And then he's going to give these wonderful four simple principles for how to keep on growing, to increase in competency, if you will, in the Christian life. He says, if we have died with him, we'll also live with him. It's what I call the crisis of death. If I died with him, we'll also live with him. Jesus said, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it will not reproduce. You see, in my humanness, I can't do anything which is of value spiritually. I need to die to that human part of me and allow God to live through me by his spirit to produce something which is living and real and eternal. Everything I do in my humanness is temporal. Everything I do in my humanness, when I die, dies with me. Everything I do, God the Holy Spirit working through me, because I let myself die over there, I put myself on the altar, can last eternally as well. It's a really good way of testing what you're doing. What's going to last for eternity and what isn't? What I'm investing my life in for eternity or how am I using my present life, the one I've got, to invest it for eternity? And you have to die to self in order to do that. The second principle, he says, is this. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Now, I'm one of those guys who's a sort of a, I think I was a 70% guy. You know, I had a little project to do, and I got 70% of it done. And I worked hard under my wife's tutelage of becoming an 80% guy. <laughs> and I've worked a little harder, and I reckon probably 90% guy now on a good day, you know? Some of you, anybody married to somebody like that? Some of you wives? You know, guys are good 70, 80, 90% guys, you know? But, but Paul says, hey, if you finish, you'll endure it. You'll enjoy it. If you finish, you'll enjoy it, he says. Finishing is the key to enjoying the victory. I want to tell you, live out your life well. Finish it well. Start now if you haven't already started and finish it. Aim to, to keep on going until you die. Or a little project you're doing. Get the project done. That's true in every part of life, isn't it? Oh, I'm too tired to keep going in this race. It's a mile race and it's only halfway through. I'm just going to quit and not worry. There's no enjoyment in that. Business. You're starting a business. Well, yeah, it got a little tough and I just quit. <laughs> you just quit? No, no. You see, enjoying the victories because you persevere through. That principle is true in the Christian life, in the present tense of the Christian life. And as you become more competent in the Christian life, you'll grow in that area as well. Number three, this one used to really bother me. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Oh, you think Peter... You think Judas, you think Saul in the Old Testament, and you, uh, and when you're a new Christian, you know, 
I, I knew I was a Christian, but I was denying him. Was he denying me as a result, you know? And I, I didn't quite know what it was at. And, and this verse especially, people would quote it to me, you know, and I'd feel guilty. And, but let me tell you what I think the principle is. It's really simple. Denial is a sure way to defeat. <laughs> Denial is a sure way to defeat. I didn't want to be defeated. A long time ago, I used to smoke, and I wanted to quit smoking, and I became quite an expert in quitting smoking. I'd quit, and I'd start, and I'd quit, and I'd start, and I'd quit. 30 times, I reckon. I'm happy to tell you that after a couple of years, I, it managed to get in there for me, and I, I'm, I quitted. I completed the quitting process. And I got victory in that area, and I'm enjoying the victory, and my lungs are still in good shape. I can't run a mile in a four and a half minutes like I used to be able to, but I can still run up the stairs. <laughs> but denial in the Christian life of what God's told you to be doing is a sure way to defeat and not happy for you. What's the good news? The good news is his last point. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. You know, despite who you are as a person, your failures your weaknesses, your ups, your downs. God is always at work in us and for us despite ourselves. Somebody say amen, please. Amen. Seriously? You believe that? It's really important. You know, we all speak to people who, who fall out of the church, of their faith. But God is not faithless to them. He wants to bring them back. And if you've got a part in somebody's life in bringing them back to a new place, that's a good ministry to have, friends. That's a good ministry to have. Because even if we are faithless, he remains faithful to us. There's all going. Five great principles. Five great commands, even, of the Christian life. Which we need to sort of be able to Keep us moving in terms of the mission of God. He says, trying to find his page one again. Where was he at? So there's character. Who you are is more important than what you do. It's the basis of everything. There's a calling. Finding other people to join you alongside, knowing what God has for you to do. There's the area of competency, which we just looked at. This area of growing in him and becoming more competent in grace and living it out. There's the area of, of, of uh, the challenge of overcoming the cost, because there's always cost and there's always the challenge to overcome it as well. And then there's that last area, which the C word is clicking right out of my mind. Um, character, where am I at? Um, character calling, challenge, capacity, and competency. Capacity, what you're called to do and doing it as well. Those are the five things. You'll find that you can do all of those in every area of business, of life, of sports, but they really apply to the mission of God in a deep way. There's a little word in Japanese. Do we have any Japanese speakers here this morning? Good. That means if I mispronounce it, you won't know. The word is that. <laughs> it's ikigai. You can look it up on the internet. It's a fascinating Japanese concept. It's this idea of what gets you up in the morning. And they have a word for it. That which gets you, it's this word, ikigai. Say it, ikigai. What's your ikigai? What gets you up? What gets you going? What gets you motivating? You know? 
And for Paul writing to Timothy, Paul knew what Timothy's get up and go was. It was spreading the gospel. It was the mission of God. I want that to be mine as well. And then he gives him these five imperatives in order that he really might make it his own so he can do these things. What's your ikigai? Maybe it's business. Maybe it's family. They're all good things, friends. We need those. But somewhere underneath all those things, it needs to be the mission of God as well. The mission of God is not on top of your business. It's not on top of your family. It's not on top of all those other things which are good things, necessary things, things that God wants to use. It's underneath those things so that Ikigai, the mission of God, drives those things as you serve him through your church, in your neighborhood, in mission as well. Maybe you're sitting in church and you say, this is great. An Englishman all the way from England come to talk to us, but I don't even have the first clue about the grace of God. Let me tell you about the grace of God. The grace of God is really simple. It's where God takes your garbage, your crap, your no-goodness, your sinfulness, the bit of you which very deep down you really don't want anybody else to know. And he says, I'm taking care of that. I'm giving that to Jesus. And he's done something about it. He's taken it away by dying on a cross for you 2,000 years ago. It was a real event. It really did happen. And I, God, intervened into human history at that point in a way which you will never quite understand, but trust me, it's true. And instead, you get all his goodness, all his righteousness, all his wonderfulness in place of all your garbage. I like that. That's a message I want to be involved in. I know because it touched my life when I got a hold of it, or rather, he got a hold of me. Yeah? So, two challenges as we leave this place. Ikigai is the mission of God in your life, the very base thing. Or have you substituted it for something temporary, something which when you die, it'll be gone? It'll be gone. And the second one is this, the grace of God. It is the most incredible thing out there. So you can walk around in this universe looking at your friends, your family, your neighbors, and know that your vertical relationship with Almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who's coming back again, has made it right so you can be at peace with your neighbors as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you give us these words for encouragement. Thank you that we have the promise of eternity. Lord, some of us need to perhaps keep on struggling a bit more, keep on persevering. Some of us need to realize there's a cost and embrace the cost to serving the mission of God. Some of us, Lord, know you, forgiven by you, but the core of our being is still very self-centered not Christ-centered, not focused on your mission, but focused on how we can get the most out of life for ourselves. And Father, this morning, if there's one who needs to take some of these ideas away and make some changes in their lives about who they are in you and therefore what they do, these words will go with them out of this room into Monday and into Tuesday and into Wednesday and into Thursday and into Friday and into Saturday come back next week saying something happened during the week because God the Holy Spirit changed something in me as well. So in his name I pray.